sermon passage this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 1 and continuing through to uh, verse 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Thanks, Michael, and morning, everyone. Uh, as Joss said, uh, my name's Joel, um, and me and my family are normally based in Vanuatu, but it's lovely to be with you this morning, uh, and you guys online as well. Um, as we're kind of preparing as a family to head back, there's this uh, process that we were trained in when we did our kind of cross-cultural training called rafting, right? A way to kind of leave one place and enter another. You make sure your uh, relationships are reconciled. That's the R. Um, that you kind of affirm the friendship you have, the A. The, the F is farewell, the people and places that have kind of meant something to you. And T, kind of think future, kind of start thinking about where you're headed. And for the farewell bit, the F of raft, you're kind of told to create these lists, right? Um, of all the, the people, the places, and the things in one context that you want to kind of take a moment to savour and say goodbye to before you enter wherever you're going. Uh, and thinking through our raft list as a family recently, there's been this big long list of people we want to see, maybe one or two kind of places that have been important to us in Australia, and just an awful lot of food. Um, <clears throat> Josh, if you want to hit the uh, button a few times. You know, we, we've, we've kind of been thinking about, all right, we haven't had ramen yet been in Australia. We've got to hurry up and get some ramen before we go. You know, we haven't, I haven't been to Coffee Alchemy yet, right? Mushrooms, we need to eat the mushrooms that we can't get over there. Breakfast cereals without moths in them, we need to eat those. The, 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 the dumplings, the, the fresh milk, the lamb, right? Because Vanuatu, where we normally live, is a very beautiful place. But for all the beaches and coral reefs, the flip side is the food. Uh, our grand diversity is whether you want yam or taro or cassava or sweet potato, right? Anything you want as long as it's a starchy vegetable and it's boiled. But, you know, as, as a community, I think we've kind of, we, we've caught as a family this, this love of, of variety, right? We prize diversity. We, we've come to kind of associate sameness with this kind of crushing, almost oppressive boredom not this again. And it's even worked its way into our spirituality. Uh, and it gives rise to this first confronting question. 
um, that we're going to look at today, kind of these next few weeks, we're looking at, at issues people might have with Christianity. Um, does Christianity squash diversity? You know, are we this kind of unnecessary beige in the glorious spectrum of the world? But, but there's actually kind of a bigger sting, I think, hiding under this question. Something that's a bit more um, visceral and, and a bit more bitter to swallow. Because the real issue for, for most of us is not, I think, the question of diversity as much as the history of it. That isn't just that Christianity is kind of a, a singular choice amongst many, but that historically, people under the label of Christian have forced their particular variety upon the rest of the world. As Rebecca McLaughlin, whose book kind of inspired these talks, puts it, the idea that Christianity is a white and Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism stands as a major ethical barrier to considering Christ. You know, that quite, quite apart from who Jesus may have been, that his followers, his, his crowd, have used Christianity as an excuse to conquer the world. That, that specifically Western European Christians have kind of baptised the, the whole process of building a global empire. That with Jesus on our flags, we moved in to new places and took over. Destroyed cultures, destroyed languages, destroyed ways of life and, and kind of imposed our own all under this umbrella of saving their souls. Now, there's two kind of flags to raise as we start talking about this. The first is that as somebody who was raised under the kind of multicultural rhetoric of Australia, it's uncomfortable even to articulate that problem, isn't it? Kind of gets you squirming in your seat a little bit. And I understand there's a real danger of somebody who looks like me addressing this question. But as with all the confronting issues we'll face over the coming weeks, the emotional stakes are really high. But if Jesus is who he says he is, is of such importance to us and to the world, then we need to at least start talking about the issues, however uncomfortable they may be. And if I misstep, I do want to say, please forgive me. And I would like a chance to apologise in person later if I do offend you in anything that I say in the next few minutes. And the second kind of flag to wave as we start is that this is just the opening to what has to be a longer conversation. Um, the first sketch of this talk was about 90 minutes long, um, and if you want that version, you can buy me some ramen or some coffee or some dumplings, and I'll happily talk your ear off. Um, because we're kind of in the food mood, right? Uh, consider this the four-course tasting menu. Uh, just can we have our tasting menu? Thank you. Um, just four little kind of bite-sized somethings to start thinking about as we confront the issue of Christianity as a white man's religion. You all ready? All right, open wide, and let's get going. Uh, the first kind of bite we need to take is that there is a, a challenge that comes from the Bible itself. Is that if you pick up a, a bound Bible like this, and, and you flick through anywhere in the first kind of two-thirds of it, chances are you are going to land in a very Israel-centric part of the Bible. That great huge chunks of our holy text is about one specific ethnic group, ancient Israel. 
And so to just read bits of the Bible can feel very exclusive. That this nation has to be different to all the others around it. That their land has to be theirs and no one else's. That they must not behave like their neighbours around them. That they must, in fact, destroy the, the symbols and places of worship of the nations that they live alongside. That they must preserve their national identity to preserve their distinctive worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. We even heard it, didn't it, in Revelation 7 that Michael just read for it. This sort of great announcement of God's people is actually this many from the tribe of Israel, this many from this tribe, that many from that tribe. It's no wonder that any other subsequent culture could take this book, seize on its texts, and take the very short step from Israel must to we must protect our culture, spread our religion do away with your beliefs. There is a challenge that comes from the Bible itself. Secondly, there's a challenge from, <coughs> from our history. Um, next little taste, lovely. Uh, history, by its very nature, is, is messy and complicated. Um, and, and it's easy to, to bias history simply by the examples we choose and the way we tell the stories. Right? You can spin it. Uh, that's why we have entire departments and universities dedicated to the different ways you can do history. Uh, unfortunately, no matter how you spin it, if you look at the history of Western Europe over the last 500, 600 years, if we're very honest, very rarely do Western Europeans come off well. Uh, the last 600 years or so has seen the kind of the rise of of Western Europe not, not just as a powerful entity right we've had empires all through history but actually as a global force right at Germany developed the printing press under Gutenberg and suddenly you had this way to produce very precise copies of knowledge and an easy way to kind of hand it out to actually spread the scholarship that had developed Around the same time, they developed, uh, you know, naval compasses and, and new uh, ship technologies, right, with full sail rigging so that suddenly you couldn't just go little, little journeys on the water. You could actually travel all around the world. Suddenly the world got big and actually round. <laughs> um, you know, the Protestant Reformation under Luther and his gang saw this challenge to what it meant to be Christian in Europe actually calling people to this radical recentering around the who and what of Jesus. And along with it, this willingness to suffer for the sake of who Jesus is. Kind of unsettled this, um, this sort of widespread and dormant Catholicism that had been on, uh, taken hold of Europe for, for centuries beforehand, and the rebirth of what... Um, we would call global mission, the idea of taking Jesus so seriously that you would actually leave where you live to find somebody who hasn't heard of him and talk about it. And it all kind of mixed and muddled together in that kind of century of, of social and technological upset. We, we have what they often call the age of discovery. 
right? That, that the map suddenly started to, uh, to, to, to be filled in past the sort of here be dragons on the edges. We actually started to discover there are places in the world that, that Europeans had never been to. Um, the Spanish uh, contact with South America. Before long, England, the Netherlands, France, even little Portugal, all kind of flooded out in their naval fleets to find the rest of the world to explore, to map, to settle, and even, yes, to conquer. And so it continued through the Americas, uh, through Africa, parts of East Asia, eventually Australia, and the South Pacific, until huge slabs of the world over the last few hundred years were controlled in some way or another by France, by Germany, by Spain, by the British Empire. And the whole kind of intermarriage of that exploration and, and political domination and religious movements of global mission and things like that make for a very messy soup to try and eat. Uh, some of it you can look back on and, and see as just raw financial and political interest. Uh, you can read some of the... Um, you know, the early kind of uh, interactions between the Spanish conquistadors, right, and the, uh, the, the, the First Nation peoples of South America. Often it's a lot more complicated than that. Take Vanuatu, right, uh, uh, kind of a safe thing for me to speak about because we've, we've uh, uh, lived and, and, and uh, tried to understand there for a while. Um, Vanuatu was kind of stumbled across by uh, a funny fellow called Pedro Fernandez de Quiros, uh, in 1606, right? Actually, quite a long time ago. And then effectively left alone until James Cook kind of re-ran into it in 1774. Like, it's actually kind of sudden introduction of uh, Europe and then just a complete kind of uh, overlooked for about a century and a half. And very quickly after James Cook kind of arrived, named it the New Hebrides, um, the traders flooded in to start looking for a quick buck to be made from these new places. You know, there's sandalwood here, there's, there's sea cucumbers of all things, um, right? And, and after some very unfortunate early uh, encounters with Christian missionaries, um, they were eaten. Uh, John Getty, a Presbyterian minister, the, the fine fellow with the mutton chops you can see on the screen, um, finally kind of made the first successful contact between the Christian faith and the uh, people of Vanuatu from the little tiny island of Anitra right down the bottom of Vanuatu. And he had all these interesting moments that you get whenever you put two cultures together, right? Um, you know, uh, Getty brought this hand-operated printing press. Apparently, that's actually what's left of it, still on a Nitrum Island, you can see there. Um, you know, so that once he'd learnt the local language, he could start translating the Bible. Um, and even though he actually became fluent in the language very quickly, the paper he brought to kind of use that printing press with uh, either rotted down into compost or was actually eaten by some of the local kids thinking it was some of his food stash, right? Um, when the locals eventually uh, did start coming to faith in Jesus through his work, there was this fascinating period of them negotiating what was European culture mixed up in church clothes and what was essential Christianity. Some of it's kind of funny, right, when you look back on it. So the first Christian wedding they held, right, the first kind of Christian couple who wanted to be uh, married, you know, uh, before God using all the kind of um, uh, uh, dressing of a, a Presbyterian wedding involved the bride spending a week going around and, and gathering every piece of European clothing she could from the four or five kind of uh, families who ended up settling there 
and put all of it on at once for her wedding day, right? And so Getty kind of writes in his journal of her waddling down the aisle, right, with every single uh, dress and petticoat and jacket and everything um, because she thought that's what you do for a Christian wedding because these funny Europeans wear lots of clothes in the tropics for reasons we still don't understand. Um, Some of it was actually a lot more serious. Uh, The first converts on a nitrum faced violent and in some case deadly pushback because one of the first things they did when they came to faith in Jesus was to stop participating in the cultural practice of widow strangling, which was this thing that uh, the cultural practice that when a husband died, uh, the women of the village would immediately kill all of his wives so that they could accompany him into the afterlife. And the Christians, off their own bat and thought, immediately said, we cannot do that if we love Jesus. It's never easy when two cultures start to mix and mingle, is it? And John Getty, actually, I think he's one of the better examples we have of somebody who wisely and carefully entered another culture with the goal of proclaiming Jesus. Uh, He made sure he did it in the local language that actually, as quickly as possible, he handed the big decisions over to local leadership and let the the Anitramese Christians make the decisions on what lined up in their culture with the gospel and what did not. But then one of the last things he did before he retired and, uh, and, and died in Australia was to lobby the British government to colonize Vanuatu. Now, he was utterly committed to local leadership concerned, as far as we can historically see, with the good of the Ni Vanuatu people. So why would he suddenly ask England to move in? Well, a few years after his arrival, Australian ships started to to visit Vanuatu and take young men and women away. Uh, This practice that I actually had never heard about till I moved to Vanuatu was what they call blackbirding, where you would take Melanesian islanders from their homes and move them to Queensland to work in the cane fields under the most dubious of pretenses. Some islands in Vanuatu lost about half of their adult males to this, and Getty and a lot of the other missionaries uh, who followed him found this abusive, Uh, that actually there was a grave evil being perpetuated here, so abhorrent that they used whatever connections they had with England to ask for the British Empire to extend itself to Vanuatu with one purpose in mind so that the British Navy could stop these slave ships from coming in. Which somehow he persuaded them to do and they did actually put a stop to blackbirding. But the French and British uh, joint colony that developed never got around to recognizing the Vanuatu as citizens. And so the last hundred years of colonial life did not go very well for the locals. In a situation like that, who was right? There was an evil they were seeking to address from other outsiders, and they tried to deal with it the way they knew how, by bringing in a military power. But it didn't go very well for the locals after that. It actually kind of backfired on the missionaries. It's it's messy. And a lot of it comes down to how you tell the story. But there is a lot in the past that Europeans, especially European Christians, have to look in the face and own up to. True evils that were done with the blessing of the church 
or at least with a label Christian attached. And I think there is room, uh, much room and much need for us to repent of evils past and present. And I think even to some extent repent of our part in enjoying the fruit of those evil things done in the past as well as any of us living in colonial societies have to face up to. And we have to seek wisdom as we try and cross cultures now, particularly those of us who would do it with the gospel as the focus. Uh, We have to learn from the errors and sins and tragedies of the past and push back against this continual kind of superiority complex that often comes uh, along with entering another culture as an outsider. We need to pursue what you might call humble and vulnerable mission if we're to pursue cross-cultural mission at all. But you know, there's more to this story as well. Our third little bite. There are very real problems in our past and our present we have to own up to, but But there's actually a problem with this objection to Christianity as well, is that it completely defies the reality of the world today. That 100 years ago, 200 years ago, right, when the uh, the missionaries kind of followed in the footsteps of the explorers to these new worlds being discovered, your typical Christian might look a bit like John Getty. Lovely mutton chops, lovely vest in the tropics, and a nice little hat to keep your white skin from burning. But now... Raw stati- like in terms of raw statistics, your average Christian in the world will be an African woman living in a township. The world has changed. I think I've got some, some stats and pictures somewhere up there. You probably can't read that from there, but basically it says the numbers are going down in America and Europe and uh, Australia, at least. Oceania is bigger than us. And everywhere else, Christianity is booming. While in the West, people are being more and more brave and honest enough to tick the no religion box on the census, it doesn't actually mean that Christianity is going away. It is growing almost everywhere else at untrackable rates. And so to object to Christianity on the grounds that it is destructive to non-Westerners is actually to ignore the choice of the rest of the world to embrace Jesus. Um, As part of our student ministry work in Vanuatu, we're part of this global network called IFES. We love acronyms in Christianity. It's just a genetic thing, I think. But, um, you know, it's it's all these little movements like ours in Vanuatu, but all around the world kind of joined together in this family. And we've got this little kind of of cohort called the the GLI, the Global Leaders Initiative. Um, It just means people like me who don't really know what they're doing getting together to share their ignorance. But um, but it's really fun and diverse, right? We've got Carmen from Colombia, Sorm from Myanmar, you know, Marina from Ukraine. Mario from Barbados. I don't know how you get a name like Mario in Barbados, but he does. Um, William from Sierra Leone. And because they're from all around the world, right, um, from, from lots of different places, I shot out a little message to them last week saying, I- I'm, I'm speaking on this issue of whether Christianity is a white man's religion. What do you guys think? And I got back a whole bunch of like 15-minute videos of them just being like, let me tell you what I think. And I was like, I can't show a 15-minute video. I'm only meant to talk for 20. Um, But I'll quote to you something from uh, my friend William from Sierra Leone said. Uh, He he messages to me. And you've got to imagine that lovely, rich West African accent uh, as he says this. This is his response when I said, is this 
a real issue with Christianity. He said, I cannot accept this. To have someone, he's a passionate man, to have someone come and tell me that I'm wrong to believe in Jesus, I cannot accept this. Yes, my ancestors were slaves. Our capital is called Freetown to remember this. But to come and say, I must let go of Jesus because those slaves came to him, you are telling me you know better than me that I must again be a slave to you, and I do not want to. I am free already in Christ. I think William actually put his finger on something important there. Uh, That for us to come to the rest of the world, having brought the gospel to them in ages past, even in unwise ways, and say, actually, we've outgrown it, and you are now the backward ones holding on to it. That's actually intrusive and oppressive in a whole new kind of way. Christianity is not white man's religion. If it ever was, it has long since outgrown us. And despite the the political and military dominance of Western Europe these past few centuries, Christianity never was European. It never was just limited to one group and one culture and one language. And that takes us to our last little kind of tasting spoon of today, which is the reality of Jesus. That there are large portions of the Bible devoted to Israel. There is that funny bit in Revelation 7 that seems to uh, envisage the end of time being very ethnically Israelite. All of that is framed very specifically by the larger story of all that God is doing through history. Right? To understand any part of the Bible, it's like, it's like understanding a single brushstroke in a painting. You have to step back and see the whole piece to understand any one part. The Bible begins with a universal focus. The opening chapters deal with all of humanity But as each kind of successive generation just arrogantly asserts itself uh, away from God, we see this narrowing down to just one person, Abraham, Genesis 12. But even in the earliest chapters of the Bible, there's a hint of where the plan is going to go. Yes, I will bless you, Abraham. I'll make a nation from you, ancient Israel. But in you, all nations will be blessed. See, there's this narrowing to the sum so that it might explode out to the all. The specific story of Israel is part of a much bigger story of all humanity. And even their exclusivity, their part to play, is leading up to something much bigger than just one people. Because the center... The heart of the Bible story of all of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, right, who broke the cultural taboos of his day to welcome a Samaritan woman back to to God in John chapter 4. Jesus, who earliest followers were given the task to take the news of his death and raising to life as king to all nations, Matthew 28. Starting from where they were, yes, but echoing out and out and out and out. The few 
ancient Israel were always part of a greater work, a global focus. And so instead we see this, this rich and wonderful tension around Jesus and diversity. There's actually this kind of unifying kind of pull, this drag of the many towards this one. Um, you know, just to grab a verse that kind of captures it quite well, John 14, 6 should be up on the screen in a second. Um, when, when asked, you know, what's Jesus on about? He says, I am actually the way to God. I am the truth about who God is. I am where life is found. And there is no other way to encounter God to come back to God, to be right with God, except through me. A unifying pull, you see. That diversity is never kind of outward focused. It actually, in Jesus, is this pull together towards a center. At the same time as there is this glory in the variety in the world. Let, let's finish that passage from Revelation chapter 7. We stopped at verse 8. Remember verse 4, uh, John, who's kind of experiencing all this, he hears the number of those who are to be sealed, this 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Let's pick up at verse 9 with what John sees. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, what looked initially like a, a catalogue of Israel, like this sort of exclusive little ethnic club, is now kind of judo-flipped by John, right? And he does this all the time through the book of Revelation, this sort of imagery-packed letter, is that he hears something and then he sees it. It's almost like this kind of dual reality to help you try and kind of stimulate your imagination to get the world the way that God sees it. You know, so chapter 5 of Revelation, you know, he he is a lion, but he sees a lamb, a king, and a sacrifice. Kind of these pictures of Jesus himself. And here, what sounds like a strictly numbered list of a single nation is actually revealed to be an unsurpassed multitude. Gloriously drawn from every corner of the world, every language, every nation, every people, every tribe, every community. And hear that? The many... The plenty, the diverse, are wonderfully united around one thing. The Lamb. Gathered around Jesus as the, the, the focal point of all the differences they bring. God has always had the whole world in mind. Every language, every village, every delicacy all part of the rich and wonderful community called his. God seems to delight just in the sheer variety of this world. But this diversity is, is orientated towards its ultimate goal, the unified worship of our King and Saviour, Jesus. Does Christianity crush diversity? 
nonsense. It, it embraces it. It celebrates it. It revels in it. And it harnesses it, orients it, directs it to its ultimate and glorious end. The many around the one. Our Lord Jesus Christ.